Hey, this morning as we conclude our B series, just for a few moments, I'd like to take you out of 2020. Is everybody okay with that? <laughs> hey, before we do that, if this is your first week with us, either on campus or online, I really appreciate you joining us for worship. My name is Mike, I'm the lead pastor at MCC, and you may notice that this looks a little different today. Sandy and I were able to be away for a couple of weeks so that we could be with family and friends, and part of our time away was in the state of Florida. Well, this past week, Governor DeWine announced a travel advisory for all individuals coming into Ohio from states reporting positive COVID-19 testing rates of 15% or higher. And of course, Florida is one of those states. So because we want to honor our leaders and we want MCC to be as safe as possible and because our leaders will tell you we're the example, not the exception, Sandy and I are self-quarantining through this week, which will complete our 14 days. I must say, I'm looking forward to next week being there on campus with those of you who are there and being online with those of you who are there. But for just a moment, let me take you out of 2020. Let me take you back in time, almost 1,956 years, plus a week or so. It's July 18th, 64 AD, and Rome has caught fire. For three days and three nights, the fire has burned out of control. Ancient temples and landmarks and homes are destroyed. 10 of the 14 city wards suffered damage, and at least three of them were totally destroyed. The people of the city were angry uh, because it was widely believed that the Emperor Nero had actually set the fire. Now those who didn't believe that he had set it were certain that he had done nothing to contain it. In fact, some of his chamberlains were caught with torches trying to rekindle the fire as it was finally going out. See, Nero had a passion for architecture and it was so strong that it caused him to destroy the city so that he could rebuild it. However, the widely accepted rumor that he had caused it had so entrenched the city that the people were on the verge of rebellion. No matter what he did to refute the rumor, and, and he aided the homeless extensively, but nothing changed the public opinion that he had set the fire. Clearly, he needed a scapegoat. He chose the church. You know, Nero was a ruthless man. When his second wife became pregnant, in a fit of rage, he kicked her so hard that both she and the child died. And Nero turned that same type of rage against the early church. He had Christians thrown in the ring with gladiators. They were fed to hungry lions for entertainment. They were covered in pitch and lit aflame so that the arena events could be seen at night. One historian wrote that Nero sewed them in skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs on them to tear them to death. They were tortured on the rack. Molten lead was poured hissing on them. These were the things people had to be prepared for if they took their stand with Jesus. And what began in Rome would soon spread throughout the empire. The Christians throughout the empire were outlaws and subject to persecution. So that's what's taking place in the cities and the churches to whom Peter is writing in the book that, that we call 1 Peter. In the midst of these persecutions, in the midst of families being torn apart and friends being brutally murdered and, and running for your life, what did Peter tell his readers about who they needed to be to be able to be part of the mission that Jesus left for the church? Okay, back to 2020. 
where maybe it's not as bad to be Jesus followers as other times in history, but in a world where a virus has us either fearful or unbelieving, and where racial tensions are running at an all-time high, and we're tired of being separated by both, and we're just tired, what does Peter say to us about who we need to be to be able to be part of the mission that Jesus left for the church? 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who gives you, asks for you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now the first word in our text tells us that Peter is referring back to what he has just said. And in the two verses which precede ours, Peter gives us two general principles that he's learned in life. See if they're not true to your experience as well. The first principle is that those who live good, even godly lives, will not usually suffer harm. He, in verse 13, he says, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Peter says, if you're eager to live a good life, who wants to hurt someone like that? And that word eager in our verse is often translated zealot. So somewhat literally, if you're zealous to do good, usually you will not suffer harm. Usually. There are exceptions, of course, to almost every rule. But those who do what is right are usually not in harm's way. Usually that's the rule. Principle number two refers to principle number one. Those who live good, godly lives will sometimes suffer anyway. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Peter knew that under normal conditions, even if you do what is right, sometimes you suffer. Someone has said, and see if you can finish this, no good deed ever goes unpunished. You ever feel that way? How will you respond to that situation or that time in your life when you are a victim of the exception instead of the rule? More, more appropriately, how does God want us to respond? Peter says, in the case of unexpected and undeserved difficult situations and circumstances in life, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have literally be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that you have. Listen, do you know who they would be making this defense to? At best, an angry neighbor. At worst, angry mob in the Colosseum. Why would Peter give this advice? Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do you know why? It's because it's why we're here. Every week in this series, we have gone back to Jesus' last words to his followers in Matthew chapter 28. Do you remember them? Jesus said, go and make, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's why Peter told these people and us that it's not just when we sit in worship or even as we go through the routine of our lives, but in the most difficult times of our life, we need to be ready. So, how do we do that? First, Peter says, I need to be ready to share my hope. Listen, we, we hope for a lot of things. These days, we hope we can get through all of what's going on right now. Uh, we hope that our kids are going to turn out okay. Some of us hope that we'll get a college football season. 
But our hope as Jesus followers is different, isn't it? Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask, do you overflow with hope? And do you know people who don't? Why is that? I read a story about uh, a guy who at dinner one night, uh, a guy who had spent summers in Maine. He was telling his friends about his experiences in a little town called Flagstaff. That town was to be flooded as part of a large lake for which a dam was being built. And in the months before it was to be flooded, all the improvements and repairs in, in the whole town had stopped. I mean, what was the use of painting a house if in six months it's going to be covered in water? Why repair anything when the whole village is going to be wiped out? So week by week, the whole town became more and more run down, more not abused, but just not cared for. And then he added by way of explanation, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Let me ask you, what is your hope? When you get down to your last day, when you are breathing your last breaths, what is your hope? Isn't it that Jesus was telling the truth? Is that your hope? Isn't that the thing that's supposed to make us different during COVID and the uncertainty with schooling, the uncertainty with jobs, the social unrest? Isn't where we put our hope that things can be better because we know the difference Jesus makes in our lives. And, and we know that it's more than about just even this lifetime. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all pity people most to be pitied. Let me take you back to the Holocaust. You ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? She was a young woman uh, who was placed in a Nazi concentration camp along with her sister Betsy. And they had smuggled in a small New Testament. And in their barracks, barracks 69, she would gather, Betsy would, or Corey would gather all of the other prisoners together. And together they would read scripture and pray. And that place became known in that prison camp as barracks 69, the crazy place where they still have hope. And what Corey experienced was that you could take away freedom, you could take away privilege, you could take away rank, you could take away esteem, you could take away worth, you could take away value, you could take away money, you could take away food, you could take away health, but you could not take away the hope that comes from being connected to Jesus. Peter says, be prepared, especially when it's most difficult, to share your hope, because the hopeless will take notice. So I need to be ready to share Jesus' hope. I also need to be ready to share Jesus' heart. That's verses 15 and 16, by the way. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Listen, when difficulties begin to back you into a corner, how do you come out of that corner? Peter says in these impossibly brutal times, do the impossible, be gentle. Second Timothy says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. And sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it? But Peter is reminding them, and us, that the door to the heart is gently pushed open. It's not knocked down. So Peter gives them, and us, one more reminder of what we should be prepared to do. I need to be ready to share in Jesus' humiliation. It's a harsh word, isn't it? 
humiliated. I mean, when was, when was Jesus humiliated? You, you know when, don't you? Galatians 3.13, referring back to the Old Testament, says, But Christ rescued us from the law's curse when he became a curse in our place. This is because the scriptures say that anyone who is nailed to a tree is under a curse. And what is our greatest hope was Jesus' greatest humiliation. You know, when I play basketball, I don't like to be called for fouls I didn't commit. And just because I'm the only one standing anywhere near the guy on the floor doesn't mean that I knocked him down. We don't like to get in trouble for what we did do wrong. I definitely don't want to have problems because of what I didn't do. But look at verses 16 to 18. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And maybe Peter is just rewording what he heard Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. <clears throat> Listen, do you know what happened when those first century readers suffered for the sake of Jesus? The same thing that will happen when we suffer unjustly for the sake of Jesus, people will notice, and it has a profound effect on them. Someone has said a saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. It was because of these early saints who would not, seemingly could not, say no to Jesus that others ended up saying yes. And it was because they were prepared with their words, even with their very lives, to share the reason for the hope that they had. You know, it's one of my favorite baseball stories, and it didn't all happen on the baseball field. Back in 1988, Oral Hershiser was the National League Champion Series, uh, Championship Series Most Valuable Player. He was the World Series Most Valuable Player. That season, he won the National League Cy Young Award. He won a National uh, League Gold Glove Award. On October 20th of that year, Hershiser was pitching for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Game 7 during the World Series. And the camera caught him with his head in, he's in the bat, dugout, and he had his head up against the wall, and it looked like he was talking to himself. Now, not long after that, he was a guest on the Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Jimmy Fallon now hosts the show today. Carson was asking him about it. He said, when the cameras saw you, what were you doing? Were you giving yourself a pep talk? And, and Hershiser said, no, not really. And Johnny said, come on, world, tell us what you were saying to get yourself back in the game. And Oral said, I wasn't, I wasn't saying anything, I was, I was singing. And Johnny said, sing it for us. Nah, I'm not much of a singer. Come on, Oral, sing it for us. And Johnny got the whole audience into it. And they were all asking him to sing. And finally, finally, Oral Hershiser conceded. And he kind of cleared his throat. <clears throat> and in a weak voice, he, he sang, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
And for a moment it was just like this. Nobody did anything. And then some people in the audience clapped, but others didn't. And Johnny apologized to him saying, I'm really sorry I pushed you to do that. I can see this is a very personal thing for you. But I tell you that because nobody knew what to do with Oral Hershiser when he sang the doxology on national television. Listen, we're certainly not facing the persecution of the first century. We're not even facing the pressure of national TV. But you do know what it's like to feel pressure. And maybe not millions of people, but someone's watching. And that's why Peter said, if you want to be part of what Jesus is up to, you need to be ready. Let's go to him. Father, we are so grateful that we get to be called by your name that we get to be your kids. And we pray that our lives reflect the family resemblance so that when people see us, they see our Father in us. Because that's going to that's gonna cause them to ask questions, especially in times of pressure, like the days we live in now, when people are trying to figure out how to re react to everything that's going on around us. So Father, we pray that we will be ready not just to live our lives in such a way that they reflect your life, but to be able to answer with our words the reason for the hope that we have. And Jesus, that reason is you. We pray that we will live in such a way that we honor your life with ours. And we pray this, Jesus, in your powerful name. And we love you. Amen.